Hi, I'm Carrie Schmidt, and this is Making Sense, a podcast produced by the Star Institute in an effort to further our commitment to impacting quality of life by developing and promoting best practices for sensory health and wellness through treatment, education, and research. Occupational therapy best practices ask us to integrate knowledge into practice. On this season of Making Sense, each episode offers a different conversation aimed at translating the most current research into clinical action for occupational therapy practitioners. This season of Making Sense is dedicated to the memory of Janet Wright. Janet was an incredibly enthusiastic occupational therapist. If she were here today, she would have been one of the first to create and host a podcast where students, parents, and teachers could glean some practical information. She did not want OT knowledge to be abstract. She looked for it in everyday situations and in daily routines. Her family takes great pride in knowing that the Star Institute embraces the same passionate principles that guided Janet. As you listen and learn, keep her encouraging voice in the back of your mind and her infectious smile in your heart. Today, I'm joined by Michelle Perkins. Michelle Perkins is an occupational therapist specializing in working with children and families with sensory processing and integration disorder and challenges in social emotional development as the founder and director of Great Kids Place in New Jersey. Michelle is also a mother of two children with sensory processing differences. She uses her real life experiences to help her clients better understand the impact of sensory processing disorder on family dynamics and relationships and the day-to-day demands of life with sensory processing differences. Michelle, welcome. Thanks for being here. First, thanks for having me. So in this podcast series, we invited the star faculty to choose a piece of literature to discuss and you chose Play as Regulation. Promoting Self-Regulation Through Play by Dr. Gilbert Foley. Tell me a little bit about why you chose this article. Um, I'm very fortunate to have Gil as a colleague of mine through my work with the DIR Fullerton community, and I've always admired his interdisciplinary view on development. He helped me grow as a therapist, really, truly connecting the emotional attachment side of development with the sensory motor side of development. Several, several aha moments and conversations and teaching side by side with Gil, um, just discussing motor development and motor milestones and the correlating attachment related milestones that occur. And as my interest was piqued in intentional use of play and diving a little bit deeper into play from more of a social emotional perspective, I really turned back to his work to sort of see what his take was. I just have always respected him as a psychologist who gets what we do as OTs um, and felt like, okay, if I want to better understand play through a wider lens, let's start with Gil and see what he has to say about it. And he just never lets you down. So it was, he's a, this is a rich, rich article just discussing so much about the development of play itself. And then the second or third or fourth, however many times I've read this article, the specific things that I pull out from it and that speak to me are different each time. And I love when I get to read something like that, that I can go back to and, and get more from each time. This article is new to me. And I found I had the same experience. It was incredibly rich, so much to learn, so much to touch upon. And I think what you're talking about in your 
um, experience with um, learning from colleagues in a different field from ours, like psychology, is that rich interplay of the work that they do and the research that they do and how it impacts occupational therapy, how um, understanding play, how delving into the literature around it enriches our practice so much. So thank you for sharing that article with me. I thought it might be interesting um, to go through the article a little bit just by way of introduction and how it's kind of structured and then talk a little bit more specifically um, about what it means for practice. Um, maybe some things that really interested you and some things that um, you've continued to learn about. So I thought it'd be great to define play for our listeners. In the article, Dr. Foley uses um, Sheridan et al.'s um, definition of play, and it's this. Child's spontaneous and pleasurable actions on objects, others, and self, which contribute to discovery, expression, and mastery of physical and social reality, ideas, and feelings. What a beautiful and complex definition for sure. I think the things I pulled out um, just in that discussion and definition around play that really jumped out um, as important to understand as clinicians is that play is shaped by venue, by place. Um, another way to think about that might be context. Um, I think you could, you could argue that. Um, it's also shaped by materials and it's shaped by playmates. What were a couple of the features um, of play that jumped out to you? It's definitely the idea of it being so multifaceted that it's not something that we do rotely, you know, and that is just a time passer, right, for kids and how the depth of expression that comes from play, the peak that we get into the inner lives of children or anybody who really engages in play, um, you know, both from a social emotional perspective, but also how using play as a sense of mastery in a way to master many things. I think as OTs, we are traditionally looking at play and trained to use play as more of an object, like how can we use this toy or this object to facilitate a certain motor response, right? Or a certain, you know, what type of fine motor activity or what type of gross motor activity, maybe some sensory piece of the, the toy, right? That the object, the thing. Um, so I really appreciated being able to look at that, but also as more of the context of relationship and play partner and use of self and affect and these things that within our frame of reference are very, very real to us in theory and practice um, and kind of reframing play as something that occurs between two people and not between a child and an object. Well, all that reminds me just how complex the concept of play is. And I can see why you're fascinated by it because while it's spontaneous, and features novelty and relies on intrinsic motivation, it is also the place to practice skills that we haven't perfected. Um, 
Which brings us really to how play is used in occupational therapy, that because it has all those features, it really can be a therapeutic medium. So talk to me a little bit about self-regulation and play, just in terms of using play as a therapeutic medium in practice and the fact that it supports self-regulation. Yeah, I think that you know, when we hear the term self-regulation, it's so vast, right? So I think that was one of the things I was curious about with this article too, is what does he mean when he's talking about self-regulation? What is, what is that definition within this, within the context of play in this article, in this work? And what I really definitely not surprised by having worked with him in the past, that this multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary look at it. And I think the term psychosensory is one that I fell in love with immediately from this article in thinking that he discusses this as um, a bi-directional relationship between sensation and emotion. Um, and I thought, well, yeah, you know, <laughs> this is what we see all the time in daily life. And it, and it was magical to have a term and say like, this is real because he called it something, right? (laughs) He gave it this beautiful word of psychosensory. And I felt so affirmed to say, yes, I mean, that is exactly what we see. Everything from parent reports when you first talk to a new family, right? It's very rare that we hear these specific sensory motor terms that we may be addressing as an OT, but very, very common to hear emotion and self and, and regulation and engagement and relationships and social skills, you know, these more, um, maybe on the surface doesn't sound like something that we could address as an OT, right? You may think, okay, this is more a area for a psychologist or a play therapist or somebody in the mental health field. And what I appreciate about Gill's take on this, his frame is that it's both, right? And that very, very much so in early development, there is not there much differentiation between the sensory experience and the emotional experience. And although he says that through symbolic development, these do become somewhat differentiated, but they're very closely linked together throughout life. And, um, and yeah, I think I see that every day and I feel that every day. And it's one of my big passions to understand more. Uh, it's also one of the reasons why I love the star model because it also frames this, right? To say that everything is, has directionality to it and everything works in this dynamic system and that we can't just look at sensory motor or emotion or relationship, right? We need to have all of that together when we're thinking and treating. Yes. And reading what he wrote captured that nuance, right? Which you don't often get. When you're reading articles on play. And so when he captures the psychosensory term, it's like, yes, I know what you're talking about because I experienced that. And it makes what is implicit in us explicit. Like it gives it a name and a term and this combination of sensation and emotion that is um, so important that we hear it in expressed in concerns about development and my child and um in in indeed in relationship so that actually is kind of a segue to 
the frame of reference as well, because our frame of reference is built on regulation, relationship, and sensory. Um, and although emotion, you know, maybe could be captured in that, under that kind of sensory, it plays out in the context of relationship. Regulation hasn't always been made such an explicit part of that, like development, you know, play happening in the context of relationship, displaying behavior and emotion and, you know, um, what is happening under the surface with sensation. Um, and to have someone tie regulation into that was so exciting to read. Yes, definitely. So talk a little bit about that context. Um, cause, you know, he does touch on that. Um, you know, that psychosensory experiences happen in context from a developmental perspective. Um, so talk a little bit about the context that we see that. Yeah. I mean, I think we hear it right all the time when we hear about, um, the different relationships that are, that the children work with have, right? The relationships with their parents, the relationships with their friends, the relationships with their siblings and how, you know, very often the presenting challenges due to the sensory processing differences are much more about being regulated, organized and engaged within those relationships. And, you know, I think what we, when we shift to a lens more of treatment as opposed to the evaluation of it and the understanding of it and as a presenting challenge, we can understand that it would then be through this relationship work that we need to address the regulation and the sensory, right? So that if we hear, if we hear that the relation, the context of relationship is what is being impacted, then we also need to use that context within our work. And I think, um, you know, Gil talks about the associated experiences, as he calls them, um, as a way to help modulate sensation, modulate emotional responses, and work within experience to help draw on the affect of the relationship, right, to, to impact changes. You know, I think that another piece is that we see mismatches all the time, right? Between the caregiver and the child or the siblings, right? They're two totally different kids. And, you know, we hear those things all the time. And, you know, another fascinating part of, of this article, as well as many others that I've since also been looking into, is this idea that um, Gil talks about the sensory modulation, the, he calls it reactivity, sensory reactivity's role in differentiating temperament, right? And again, feeling so affirmed by his work and saying, yeah, and we, we see this, right? We see these sort of personality temperament types based on the sensory processing differences that we also find, right? So for example, it's very common for us to see some caution, skepticism, shyness when we also see sensory over-responsivity. Right, we see some withdrawal and potentially even some depression um, type behaviors when we see sensory under responsivity. Right, we we see this very clearly start to kind of play out, and to have him point out that you know, yes, that's a thing, right? Yep, check, that's actually a thing, (laughs) Um, and to reference several other works by people in the mental infant mental health field that show that you know. you know, in, in early 
infancy and early childhood. Um, so, you know, interestingly, probably, I don't know, four or five years ago where, where was really a big time for me to see like pretty consistently where this was playing out in my practice, where there was a certain challenge, which, you know, then I would do the evaluation and it would be this, this subtype. Right. And then we'd see here that same personality type or emotional challenge. And it would also be that subtype. And you're like, this can't be a coincidence. Right. Um, so very wonderfully Sarah show and our wonderful colleague was like, well, we should do something about that. Right. Like she always does. And, uh, and so I, you know, I was like, oh, I don't really know. I don't really have time. I'm not really sure. But what I did do was say, I got to make sure this isn't just in my mind. Right. And so I made a uh, parent report measure that essentially the personality measure, right. It's not, it's just a checklist essentially that the parents fill out. And um, what we're doing now is taking those checklists on personality, and emotional states and sensory processing and, and looking at them side by side to see if, you know, how it aligns and if, and if it really is something of significance. Um, so when I re- looked back at this article, when, you know, you had come and said, Hey, let's talk about an article. And I thought, Oh, I love this article. Let's talk about this. And I thought, well, that's cool. Cause now I've got this research, <laughs> this research base that I can pull on to say other people are looking at this too. Um, and this is maybe how we can use it in our, within our framework. I think that's wonderful. I'm so glad that you're doing that. Um, it's so important because. It helps demystify for the parents who experience that mismatch too, and take away any, maybe blame is a hard word, but um, I do feel like parents do blame themselves when they are a mismatch with their child because they think it's something maybe wrong with them or wrong with their child. And when we can demystify it and just say, oh, look, this is how your sensory modulation or in Gill's uh, terminology, sensory reactivity is this is its role in determining how this plays out in your temperament. And this is the mod, you know, this is your child's modulation style, and this is how it's playing out in his or her temperament. And I, I love that your research is is supporting demystifying that and educating people, and um, maybe taking the edge off something that is so emotionally fraught. Yes. And giving it this biological foundation to say we can, we can, you know, sort of point to, you know, this biological reason that this temperament is happening. And, you know, it's no offense to you, right? It's not that this behavior, this emotionality is directed towards you on purpose. It's really how they feel, right? How we sense the world is impacting how we feel, which is impacting how we relate and communicate. Um, it also provides the sense of hope, like there's something to do, we can do about it. You know, um, the other part in this article that I really found fascinating was the idea that, um, Gil says the temperamental characteristics of sensory reactivity are likely to be reflected in the play styles and play experiences. Um, and then he goes on to say that the play experiences then exert a modulating influence on that reactivity and arousal, arousal, right? So not only is the, the almost like the, I guess, evaluative factor to say like, okay, yes, here's this sensation, here's this emotion, 
but it's also to say when we play in a certain way, we can impact change not only on the emotional experience, but also on the sensory reactivity. Um, so it's amazing for when we talk to parents to say, well, we're going to help you play with your kids, you know, and that's going to help with this underlying challenge that's leading to these outward challenges in your relationship. Um, and then, you know, not only will we be making that change from a biological perspective, but we're also rebuilding their relationship by play, right? This going back to your original definition, this pleasurable action, right? Um, this spontaneous pleasurable action that will basically be assigning to families to be having fun together, uh, which will also make some changes. I think one unique thing about the STAR model is how much we emphasize play, but not just that, not just play, right? When we emphasize smart play, um, but that we allow the parents to bear witness to the play style as an indicator of what the child is experiencing in their bodies. And that's what you're saying. It is look at how they're playing. Now let's think about what we know about their sensory system and linking it together and then saying it's bi-directional. Now let's watch this, right? Now play can influence arousal, which can help us access, um, you know, sensory um, integration is better in this context. Um, and so I think to, again, to read this and think this is what we do. <laughs> But yes. this is a psychologist putting it into um, a beautiful statement um, that we can then turn around, integrate into practice, but also use as education and empowering um, the parents to see the same thing that we see. Yeah, definitely. And I think also the idea of as OTs and treatment, thinking about like, really, truly being intentional in our choice of play themes, right? So, you know, not only thinking about what kind of sensory motor experience they could have, but what type of emotional experience does a certain play theme welcome and invite? And what does that then mean for all of this underlying stuff, right? So, you know, Gil says here that um, symbols serve to bind negative impulses and feeling from direct behavioral enactment. So it neutralizes and places those impulses and feelings into language or even more appropriate action, such as symbolic play. So what was exciting about that to me is to say like, okay, here's the symbolic play that is an action, right? It's a, it's a motor experience. It's a sensory experience. It's this feeling put into sensory motor action, right? Um, and when we do that by choosing the right play theme, then we are enticing certain actions and sensory experiences, right? While we're doing that, there's also an emotion that comes with that. So if we've got, for example, um, you know, somebody who has falls more like into a posture subtype, right? That may be their primary sensory processing difference. And we give them a play theme of power, right? And strength and being the strong one. And now they're acting this part in this play theme, which makes them feel 
strong and powerful, right? Which also invites their body to do strong and powerful things to then work on that postural system, right? So it's an amazing connection all the way around where we can help them to feel less fearful and less scared through the play of having power and being strong, but then working on that postural system at the same time. That's a beautiful example. Something I keep hearing you say is play theme and play role. And it occurs to me that if occupational therapists are listening, there are times in which our play is too focused on an object. And there's a real paradigm shift in the STAR model, and I think in the DIR floor time model as well, that shifts us away from objects as play. Um, objects are incorporated into themes and roles, but we don't set up objects, for example. And we don't go set up, for example, up in the gym with specific objects necessarily. We allow the play to unfold by it helping collaboratively establish a theme or establish a role in, in a, in a bigger play scheme. So tell me a little bit about that because it occurs to me that that's very powerful. That what themes and roles do is they bring the element of exploration and discovery and yet require and call upon sensory motor capabilities to enact. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, I think that this article does a really nice job when um, Gil goes into the different ways of self of regulation through play, right. In, in trying a role, right. Trying out a role and seeing what it feels like to be a certain way, right. Or do a certain thing or practice a certain skill and how, when we can practice those things and do those things in the context of play, it's safe, right. I'm just going to try this here in this safe place because it's not really me doing it. Right. Um, so if it's not quite successful, then it's okay because we're just playing, um, you know, obviously not cognitively thinking that as the kids are going into this, which is the most fascinating part is there's this internal drive for experimentation and discovery of what a certain role or experience may be like. And, you know, I think that the good part, the effective part, I guess, of how we work is we can keep it still spontaneous and internally driven when we're not giving those themes, right? And giving those objects, but rather within our relationship, inviting and feeling that safety so that they can kind of spontaneously go into these roles, um, you know, with us. And then, you know, I think that um, there's a lot of great examples in here that we can pull from to say, you know, I don't think that he was thinking about the nosology, right? When he was writing this, because it was for a speech therapy journal, right? So the cool part is that we're talking so much about this sensory motor, affective, emotional attachment, relationship, relation, like connection when it was for a speech, a speech journal. right? Um, so, you know, he, I don't believe he was thinking so much about the nosology here, but it was, there were such clear examples for me where we could um, extrapolate that out. So he talks about 
play giving the opportunities to, he says, habituate and desensitize to intense stimuli to practice modulating levels of psychosensory arousal and state, right? So it just screams sensory over-responsivity to me, right? Like, yes, that's what we want to do in play is to help to habituate and desensitize in this playful context of relationship. Um, He also talks about um, one of the examples he gives says play is for experimentation with, with such things as extremes from pretending to sleep to frolicking, from whispering to shouting. And that made me think so much about the nosology in the sensory under-responsivity way and that concept of using this fast blast and this opportunity to go low and fast and low and fast. Um, so it was just an interesting way to look at this through the lens of our work and be able to pull out these examples that are very functionally used in our treatment. Yeah, when you're talking, I'm really thinking about one of the really nuanced parts of implementing the star frame of reference and DIR floor time is in, in the context of that relationship is to um, be able to tell when perhaps dysregulation is starting to occur, whether that's through emotion or whether um, we're noticing arousal regulation cues, which I think he, again, doesn't speak necessarily about arousal regulation cues, but he cites them as examples here. And that occupational therapy's role in that is to shift the play by using some of these tools, right? So, you know, what about the role? What about the pace? What about what's involved in the play? could change this challenge so that it's better suited for this child, whether it's better suited for their um, temperament, (laughs) whether it's better suited just for um, their sensory differences, um, and to really not just uh, implement that, but to model it and teach the parents. And it's amazing that he captures that in his examples, like we're doing in turning the dials, like you're talking about um, fast blast for under-responsive, um, you know, styles, um, is, is captured in his examples. He relates it to self-regulation, um, but in the context of therapy where maybe self-regulation skills don't quite exist yet, mm-hmm. um, being able to teach the child. And I, you know, definitely find it fascinating that through his lens, it's likely that he's seeing it more from a psychotherapy perspective as far as a child needing to regulate those different graded responses, right? But for us, we would probably look at the same situation and look at it more from essentially modulation or discrimination perspective. But the cool part about the work that we do within our frame of reference is that we probably would address it the same way, (laughs) whether we were looking through one lens or the other. Okay. So, and even, you know, thinking a little more broadly about the SPD nosology, we've we've touched on temperaments and over-responsivity and under-responsivity. How does play integrate into the treatment of a sensory-based motor disorder like dyspraxia? 
Yeah. I mean, I think in treatment, we, we always think about this idea of, um, logical connections, right? Logical connections in play relating a little bit to logical connections in sequencing and timing and, and pacing and that kind of thing. And I think, you know, another part, big part of that, which I see very often clinically is the emotional response for our kids with dyspraxia, right? These high frustration levels and, um, you know, potentially even aggressive responses when things aren't quite working out and bigger emotional responses to unexpected occurrences, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, interestingly in the article, it does talk a little bit about this and not necessarily in the, in this framework as, you know, dyspraxia or, or praxis, but in thinking about modulating different levels of activity, transitions, experimenting with grading of, you know, actions and responses. And, you know, that so much sounds like sensory discrimination and praxis and, you know, all of the underlying pieces that goes and in, go into our, our praxis work. Um, you know, he also talks about creating model situations, experimenting with feeling dysregulated and recovering, um, practicing, drawing upon and generalizing from play experiences to real life. Um, and I believe that so much of that is so supportive for our kids with dyspraxia who in real life situations feel this disconnection between the plan and what actually happens for them, right? Or what is expected and what actually happens. And to have that ability to not only practice, literally practice how to do things in play, but also practice the recovery from that, where you start to play something and it doesn't quite work out, or it, there's no logical flow and that's brought to your attention, reel it in, make sense of the play. And that, that choked up, oh no, feeling. And then oh, wait, but we played through it. And now we have this, you know, this nice flow to our play. And, and, you know, that's more of the piece that is discussed in the article is this practice of that regulation feeling and that recovery. Uh, but I think that so much helps for our kids that with dyspraxia when they're, when they're trying to cope with the emotional response while still trying to figure out how to do it at the same time. Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you. Um, I think we could go on and on about this article. It's so rich and we will include um, information, the reference for it for sure, for anybody who's interested in reading it, um, really reading any of Dr. Foley's work because this was a really um, rich piece that changed my mind about some things and left me with some things to think about. And we didn't talk a lot about play levels here, but one thing I'm taking away from the article is something that he said that the growing ability to remember, encode, and enact develops into symbolic play. I've been thinking a lot about that and thinking about whether or not remembering, encoding, and enacting are precursors to symbolic play. So I'm going to leave um, this conversation thinking about a lot, but that's something specific that jumped out to me in the article. What's one thing? Um, maybe an idea that you had before reading this article or um, an idea that in your preparation um, for this conversation has changed or evolved or made you want to know more? Yeah, I mean, I was revisiting this article while I was doing my infant mental health coursework, and I always recognize relationship, use of self, affect, attunement as integral to treatment. 
Um, and now when I started to see more of this connection between certain emotional states and specific subtypes, and I returned to the article to dive a little bit deeper into using play um, and the idea of, you know, can we as OTs use play to go a little bit beyond sensory motor work and still be within our framework, right? Um, and I think, you know, the, the, what came out of that was yes, you know, yes, it's okay. Um, it's okay to do that. It's, it's okay within our, our work to say that there is this clear connection and it would almost be not as helpful to not consider the emotional piece that you're bringing when you do play, right. And that you can't really separate the emotional experience from the play experience. And so there should be some understanding some recognition and some reflection on what what are you playing right and why is a child choosing a certain play theme or when you're feeling like they're stuck and you know we're playing the same thing over and over that we we should reflect on that and try to understand that and what that's telling us um so really just i left once again from this article feeling just affirmed that when we're considering sensory processing work, that um, as part of our child's individual differences, that this emotionality piece and of sensory emotion and regulation, all of it together is, is truly dynamic and should also be consistently looked into more. That's great. Tell me something um, you're curious about right now. Yeah. So I, you know, I definitely felt so affirmed by the research mentioned in this article um, that I've been reading a little bit more about the connection between, between temperament and sensory reactivity, just some more infant, early infancy, mental health work. Um, and this idea of more specific connections between sensation and emotion. So there's a lot of work on anxiety and vestibular processing, um, you know, and proprioception and sense of self and, you know, kind of looking more into like, so what, right? What is the specific connection? Um, the other side of research that's been super fascinating to me recently is the um, um, embodied affectivity research. Um, you know, thinking about how if we are tapping into sensory motor experiences and actions, how just simply the way that we invite body position and action, um, when we tap into sensory motor experiences and how we um, invite a child to move their body and hold their body and the actions that they do helps us to impact change on that emotional experience as well. That's great. Well, I know people are going to want to get to know a little bit more about your work and where they can find you. So I know you have a project coming up that you might want to share about. Yeah. So on February 17th, we'll be doing, I'll be doing a webinar for STAR called Sensory Attuned Play. So we're diving deeper into the connection between sensation and emotion. And I'll discuss more specific information on what we have come up with so far as the pairing between us like specific emotional states and each sensory subtype and also what type of play themes work best with each sensory processing difference. That's really exciting. I'm going to have to tune into that one. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for the work that you do. 
thank you um, for the passion that you have for our profession. It clear, it's so clear. Um, and I know that the families that you serve benefit so much as do we from your practice and from learning from you. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks so much again for having me. You can find me, Carrie Schmidt, on Instagram at Carrie Schmidt OTD. That's C-A-R-R-I-E-S-C-H-M-I-T-T-O-T-D. The STAR Institute is a nonprofit organization. You can find out more about us at our website, sensoryhealth.org. That's www.sensoryhealth.org. There you can join our email list, find out about our educational, clinical, and research endeavors, and make a donation. This podcast wouldn't be possible without our wonderful guests and the support from the STAR Institute, especially Crystal Hayes and Tori Pluchek. Your feedback matters to us. Please leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. This is Making Sense. I'm Carrie Schmidt.